0: Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest, Denise O'Hagan, has worked as an editor with various publishing houses including Collins, Heinemann and Routledge in London and Horowitz Educational and Cambridge University Press in Sydney where she was also consulting editor with the State Library of New South Wales. She manages Blackquill Press, which she set up to publish her late mother's books and is the author of the mini style guide published in 2019 which seems like a lifetime ago <laughs> she's also poetry editor for the australian um, for australia and new zealand for the fabulous blue nib her poetry is widely published and awarded and she's here today to read from and talk about her wonderful new poetry collection the beating heart denise welcome
1: thank you so much it's an honor to be here thank you magdalena So can I please um, ask you to open the show with a poem of your choosing? Yes, I'm delighted to do so. Um, I've chosen Vermeer in Boston. Usually, I think a poem should stand up on its own two feet. But in this case, I'd like to explain briefly about the title. Um, Just under five years ago, we spent a month in Boston, most of it in Boston Children's Hospital. And it so happened that the um, Museum of Fine Arts round the corner was holding an exhibition of painters of the Dutch Republic. And it included Vermeer, one of my all time favorite painters and his painting, A Lady Writing. Hence the title, Vermeer in Boston. I'd waited decades to see that knowing glance, forever paused, that letter being permanently written and that ermine-edged yellow morning jacket. Yet I found myself ridiculously in the exhibition by accident, traveled half the world here for another reason entirely and stood clammy-palmed and weary, my thoughts haywire, clinging to another imagined room a mere walk away, where a team of specialists poured over our sun Whose open chest was spread like a canvas for the surgeons to splatter and daub and create another version of his deformed and failing heart, their masterpiece. And while all this was happening, I met her painted gaze unflinching, wondering even then what she'd been writing and to whom and why. She'd raised her eyes unblinking, poised and faintly mocking. Too intelligent, I couldn't help thinking, for 21st century positivity. Instead, her Mona Lisa almost smile, stayed with me almost all the while. I waited for the phone call. I didn't feel alone. And when they'd finished, 11 long hours later, applied the appropriate solutions, brushed away the bloody residue, hung up their paintbrushes, it came. Your son is in recovery. Still later, on the long flight home, juggling pills in international time differences, her enigmatic expression flew with me long after the shadows around her faded with her writing box and inkwells, her slim stilled quill pen, the satin ribbons shining in her hair and the round of her wrist bone all this slipped away until I saw it later in a catalogue. And in one moment, I was back in Boston with her, waiting.
0: That's, it's such an extraordinary poem. So many different things are happening simultaneously. Um, and in some ways, I'm, I'm so glad you chose that one, um, because I feel like it almost provides an anchor for the book as a whole. That, the, that this is the beating heart um, that a, a lot of the other poems pivot around. Did you start with that one? <laughs> How did the book come about?
1: Um, you're quite right. You're quite right. The 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 heart. It's it's um, it's both a literal reference to many of the poems um, deal with the cardiac conditions which run through our family but also equally it's a metaphor for the deeper feelings in things. So I never set out to write this, it simply emerged like all my poetry. Uh, but the, the image of the heart does run through my poems at both these levels definitely, and probably in this poem more than anything. Um, the art is also inspiration and it gives us heart to deal with the heart surgery, the cardiac surgery. So there's a double level there going on, yeah.
0: Mm, yes, and, and of course the ekphrasis that happens in this and the whole notion of what it means, you know, what poetry means, what art means, what life means, um, what it means to be, you know, a, a mother um, and have, you know, is the, the common expression which sprang to mind immediately when I read this, um, even when you're not dealing with a, you know this major incident um, of of anxiety, the idea that you no longer can control where your heart is going and what it's doing, you know that it's now walking around outside your body and you you can't make it be. you can't do that, you know it's your child is is not in you anymore, it's not part of you. And yet the love is intense. So all of that comes through, I think, in that work in in that poem in particular, where I I think a lot of the themes of the book are concentrated um, to quite beautiful effect, but also throughout
1: the collection. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad that you said that because um, I was thinking before this interview, you know, what are we doing when we write poetry? What is poetry? And it's um, it contains obviously analysis but it's more than that, it's more than thought. It contains so much feeling, but it's not undiluted feeling either. So poetry does, it occupies this curious space uh, between thought and feeling, and we're trying to give a voice to to, to everything that we, we feel at certain moments in a way that language, um, other language simply doesn't fulfill. I think that's part of what I'm trying to do and why I resorted, why I turned to poetry, why we all do, maybe.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, So there seems to be something of a structure to the book. Um, I found particularly in the first two parts, you know, we have your childhood, almost chronological in a way. We have your childhood in Italy. We have the birth of your son and his subsequent operation. did you start with that structure? Was it meant to be a kind of, um, you know, almost chronological memoir?
1: It wasn't. And it came about because the first draft, when I had already submitted it to the publishers, I got the page proofs back, I realised that the structure was lacking and I actually wanted to restructure it. Um, and then I wondered how best to structure this particular book because I don't plan what to write, when to write it. So it's a very fluid process. Um, In the end, I went for a slightly linear approach, starting off with um, the poems um, taking place in Italy, where I grew up and in Rome, touching on my years in England briefly, and then obviously some in Australia, where I've now been for, oh, nearly 30 years. um, I went for that linear approach. But, of course, when we write, the mind goes back and forth and swims all around. However, I thought I would follow that, that line through my life. Yes, yes.
0: Yes. Did, did, you, um, did you start thinking memoir or was that, is that just the nature of, of your work?
1: No. I, um, it's funny because my poems have been described as... Um, you know, confessional and memoir correctly. But I think we're all our own raw material. Where do we start if not with ourselves? I hope that um, I managed to write something which is about me, but at the same time goes through the individual of me and up into something which, to which everyone can relate. Um, so in a way, I'm using myself. Um, it's not exactly therapy either because it's hard work and to, to, you know, distill the experience and so on. But yes, I do certainly use, use my, myself, my life. I also sometimes simply imagine what it might be for someone else. So, and then I'll write it from the point of view of myself, but it's not me. Um, There's a couple of poems like that in the book, Last Stop, um, what was that other one? Separateness that had a few people worried. Um, well, there, separ- that's an interesting thing, and I
0: guess even if you're writing, you know, something that you might claim to be memoir, um, there's always art, isn't there? It's it's never really true. It's um, uh, I mean, even a even when you're recounting a memory, it's never really true in any factual sense. You're always constructing every moment. You're constructing something new.
1: Well, it goes through. Through the filter of memory, and then is it accurate? can it
0: Okay, so um, yeah, I, you know I, I guess um, one of the nice things about your work is that um, there is really this whole Proustian sense about it that you know um, a stimulus I find this runs through the book a stimulus. Um, like seeing the painting um, in a, you know, years later or, um, you know, tasting something. In this case, in the case of um, one of your palms, Pine Nuts, which will bring you back to a space.
1: So could I get you to read Pine Nuts at Lunchtime? Thank you, yes. Pine Nuts at Lunchtime. It was in the way of things that a casual sighting in a supermarket trolley, in front of me of a packet of nuts, and I was a girl again, delighting in that lunch hour of freedom from sitting straight-backed, blank-eyed at conjugations, calculations, or grammatical exclamations, watching our teacher's hands slowly scrape that white stub of chalk across the blackboard and wincing as it chanced to squeak. But when the bell sounded our release, we hurried out under the wobbling shade of the umbrella pines and ran and dodged and hid and found until, flushed and gasping, we came to rest. We knew how to spot them then, those slight charcoal-coloured oblongs of pine nuts nestled in the grooves of crazy paving like they had been dipped in ash. Slipping off a shoe, heel in hand, we'd kneel And with the deft turn of a schoolgirl's wrist, we would smash them open, but gently, so as not to injure the pale, delicate-tasting flesh inside, fresh to the world and sweeter than any pricey, packaged import.
0: Again, I love that there are a number of things happening in that poem, which I think is the case for for all of your work, um, you know, there's, there's the immediacy of that sensual flavor. Um, it, the whole poem is, is quite sensual, and as many of your poems are. Um, and then there's the memory, and there's also this kind of critique of the, the quick and the immediate, the sort of almost, you know, capitalism and what it does to the real. True. So I love how all of those things are happening, you know, the intellectual with the the visceral, simultaneously
1: i'm glad that you read it like that i mean it's interesting hearing someone else describe your poem you know it's it's really illuminating for me actually but yeah you're right i took one small thing a pine nut i've always loved pine nuts um and it, this this detail took me right back through memory you know it's a poem about school days of course um, I was lucky enough to go to school on the Via Apiantica, which is a really famous old road, but I didn't care about it then. I was more interested in the pine trees and lunchtime games and so on. But memory and how we, we see it, how we decode it, um, it's like a kaleidoscope of fragments. Um, and they settle and then we fix on certain ones. And I think <clears throat> I think it's rarely the facts of the case which stay with us as much as the feeling and the mood and i think for me at least this is very true in the poems about childhood one small detail will conjure up a whole a whole feeling of a time and that's that's really what was happening in pine nuts at lunchtime it's all there in that small pine nut Mm,
0: yes The, the whole notion of i guess time firstly, poetry being everywhere, and also how our pasts are ever present with us, that we carry we carry people, we carry things, we carry memories, and they can be released. Mm.
1: Time is something that <clears throat> does really fascinate me. Um, I don't think it ever stops. I don't think it's linear. I think it informs us, it shapes us, and above all, we carry it with us all the time. Mm.
0: Yes, and you it certainly- is us. Mm. Mm. And you play with it a lot in the book. So Hmm. this might be a good time to read um, your poem, The Passing of Things.
1: That's where I deal with this directly. I wrote this poem a long time ago. So the form is a very simple one, but the notion has always stayed with me. The Passing of Things. I slip off my shoes and sit down with a good five minutes to spare. My eyes on the hands of the clock as they drag their slow way round. The minutes are heavy. I have always been fascinated with time. This notion that we can partition up and measure the passing of things. Put a line like a child's ruler between past and future. Whereas in fact, the transition from now to then is indefinable. In the very act of grasping it, it is already gone if it ever existed at all. Perhaps this is why I'm drawn to memories, recordings, reminiscing and all manner of traces, like my photograph album obsessively arranged, as if in that arranging, I could superimpose an order or clarity, perhaps even a meaning that may never have been there when then was now. That's what, that, that really picks
0: up on a lot of the things we've, we've been talking about. Um, this creation, almost um, as, you, as you get stimulated, as the stimulus um, releases a memory and you work through it in an artistic sense, it actually becomes something, maybe something permanent, something crafted, something universal
1: rather than personal. I hope so. That, that would make me happy to think that. I think that we do, many of us, The way we think about time, the construct of time, it's a way to attain a measure of control and order in our lives, which are really unscripted for all of us. And I think we we do this in, in our speech patterns. You know, we're told to get over it or things like this. So this notion, we talk about time as if it is the fixed quantity and we can just pop it there or do this or do that. I see it as running through everything.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so can we go back a little bit, just a little bit to the the title and the, the whole notion of heart that we touched on a little bit in the beginning? Um, I want to, I want to ask you to read another poem and, um, and I found myself, and maybe it's just because I'm a mother as well, um, and, you know, and I've, I've been in that waiting room, <laughs> so I know what it's like. It's, um, it's one of those things that, that you, know, you convey beautifully and um, passionately and dispassionately at the same time, which is what a poet can do, um, I think, and, and bring others in. Um, but I also feel that a lot of the book pivots around the notion of you know, what it means to be alive and the beating heart almost as a metaphor for, for life and for love and you know all the things that the heart represents, as well as a literal beating heart. Um, So um, and I feel that the poems about about your son Isaac really encapsulate that notion of of heart in all of those
1: permeations. Thank you. I mean, when something very significant happens, it does color everything. One good thing it's done for me is um, I don't think I really took much for granted, but I definitely don't anymore. And I really appreciate like you know our children and life it's a gift in a way and um if we can respond to it with grace then that's the most that we can ask yes so uh,
0: in anxiety and grace
1: (laughs) (laughs) a little bit of grace (laughs) matters of the heart sure so we're going back in time now i hope i can get through this I had not realized hands and fingers could be so small, so pink and crinkly, nails and all, a little tiny human being, complete, perfect, except that you were not. I could not hear, I did not want to know the complicated diagnosis they were pressing in upon us. I'd never heard of Epstein's anomaly, just wanted to hold you with my eyes, through the plastic pod of the incubator, moving so the reflections didn't take away a single little part of you. While you lay swathed in lines, bathed in fluorescent lights and fed on oxygen, we bit our nails in the waiting room. A rare condition, the doctor's careful words, pronounced at last, oracle-like, would later pour through our minds and we'd sieve them hungrily to extract a drop of extra meaning. Excuse me, no, severe, hard to say. He paused with professional reticence. It's a case of wait and see. And so began a chain of days of waiting and seeing and waiting yet again for the distorted chambers of your small heart, like a microcosm of all imperfect structures to adapt their functions to the outside world, become mini-experts at compensation, minimize the differences, fool the observer, and play the ultimate fit-in game. Yet I feel it now, and sensed it then, seeing the awkwardness of visitors, unsure of what to say and how, that your imperfection mirrors a greater one in the hearts of all of us around you, who struggle to acknowledge, much less accept, what we cannot understand or justify. Sorry. <laughs> Could have been worse. Could have been worse.
0: No, sorry, sorry for asking you to read <laughs> one of the most intense and moving poems in the book. But I couldn't resist because it's you know, it's so exquisite and 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 I love the way and and I don't know that this is Something that, you know, somebody who hasn't read the book will necessarily understand. But I love the way that you are able to turn, again, we've talked about this, this, this immediate personal, intensely personal um, pain into something which is very much a part of all of, or, or part of the nature of what it means to be a human being in this world. You know, oh. it's, you, it's, a, it, it's a, a universal pain that you
1: touch upon. I'm so pleased that you can read it like that. I mean, I think, you know, I I think as a society, we're quite obsessed with the idea of perfection. Mm -hmm. And when we meet imperfection, we really don't know how to react many times. And so the poem really isn't about contemplating the possible death of a child or a diagnosis with an unknown outcome. It's also really about... The inadequacy of our own responses to this situation um and so really there's a double layer of imperfection going on i think we're quite tribal at the heart of it and we we want to join a group of people saying congratulations or commiserations or whatever it is but um you get a situation like this with an unknown and a surprising situation it was un you know, wasn't predicted. And our responses to it can be so poor and so shallow and we're so confused. We don't know how to react. And the poem is with sympathy for people who are not sure how to respond as well, including ourselves. So I'm happy you read it like that. That's good.
0: (laughs) And again, this is what poetry can do, but I think it opens the door to to not parceling things up as you talked about parceling up time, parceling up, you know, types, parceling up moments, parceling up people, parceling up perfection versus non-perfection. You know, it's, it's about recognizing that, um, that this is part of the actual, this is, this is part of life to have these, you know, this imperfection is
1: its own kind of perfection. If I can um, through poetry express an experience that, other people who haven't gone through whatever the trigger was for that particular poem that other people can respond to and feel as keenly as as I do, or at least keenly, then I think, you know, this is where poetry really does excel because it's so succinct at best. It really can distill and make universal um, an individual condition or problem or experience rather than being simply an outpouring of one person's life.
0: Yes, and yeah. many of the poems, particularly the latter poems in the book I found, touched on the nature of poetry. They were sort of meta-poetic. <laughs> so um, just to lighten things, <laughs> lighten the mood a bit, um, can <laughs> I get you to read My Tapestry?
1: Yes, indeed, it's a very different one. So that's, um, that's a good idea. My Tapestry. Over how many ways with words and turns of phrase and scribbles and scrolls have my fingers lingered. In getting a feeling for the spirit that moves, the outward literal form, we step into the writer's mind to follow the contours of their thoughts. Only then can we dare to shape their material, reinforcing the fabric of expressions, trimming away the frills, removing padding, and shreds of ambiguity folded into phrases, stretching sentences until they're taught with meaning, one following on from another, until they all hang perfectly, pleasingly, with no loose threads, seamless. For we editors are tailors, seamstresses of old, working in the back rooms of history, heads bowed, diligently, invisibly. we cut and paste and nip and tuck, sewing it all together until the point is clear. Here at this work, my pens, my needle, I stitch in words. This is my tapestry.
0: And that is, again, what we've been talking about, what, you know, this this taking of whatever the raw material is of, of life and, you know putting it into a construct, and which is, you know, I guess, what poetry is, and certainly what the poems in The Beating Heart do, you know, so well.
1: I mean, much has talked with poetry about how it releases, which it does, definitely. But having released, there's um, a lot of, well, work that goes into the refinement and polishing of poetry. I'm probably a little bit um, biased towards it because of my work as an editor. Mm. So I spend as long pairing a poem back at the end as I have writing it half the time. Um, And that work, that editing work, the nature of any editing work is curious because it's largely invisible if we do it well. What we're aiming at is for the final product to be seamless and hopefully no one will comment on the editing unless there's a problem. So as an editor, you sort of scratch away in the background a lot of the time. But I think it's very important because writing poetry is a craft as well as, you know, an emotional release. Um, It's a hard thing to write about that process. But I think, you know, it is part of poetry, the the editing and the polishing and the refining. Condensing, as you put it. Condensing. (laughs) Less is more.
0: Um, just talk to me a little bit about the Blue Nib um, and how you
1: became editor and your overall vision. Oh, the Blue Nib is wonderful. It's um, so as poetry editor for Australia and New Zealand, I'm blessed to be on the receiving end of so many poems that come in and it's a huge privilege to then select a very small number of these for publication. Um, I've, I've, Yes, as I said, it's a privilege, but I've also really learned so much because every poem that hits my desk is has got its own style, its own subject. There's so many types of poetry in the world, um, far more variation than I'd ever imagined. And I try and look at each one individually without an expectation, regardless of who wrote it, when or where. Um, and so all the editors are doing this, the selection process, that's what I'm talking about right now. Um, So the poems, yes, the poems come in from all parts of the world, and we select a small number for publication. We then also present in an editorial, uh, we present the poems that we've selected. And of course, we do the sharing on social media, and so on. Um, And it's my way of um, giving back to the literary community and helping to encourage other emerging as well as established poets the way I also was encouraged. Uh, And it's it's really, it's quite intense, but it's quite a privilege as well. So yes, I'm encouraging people to submit to the Blue Nib, the window's open at the moment. I've learned but more, more from the Blue Nib than I probably have from any other job.
0: And it's a, it's such a community building thing as well, isn't it? At a time when, you know, maybe we're all feeling a, a little bit isolated. Um, certainly some of the bigger literary events have been stopped. We don't get together quite so much as we we used to. Um, but nevertheless, I feel like these, these communities of, of poets um, and readers readers and writers who come together and, you know, kind of understand each other in maybe a a very deep,
1: unique sort of way. Um, It's it's really very powerful, isn't it? It is, it is. There's a, a new level of connection. It was foisted upon us, but having happened this way, it actually means now that we can get to know people and get to know the poetry of people from far away. And thanks to Zoom, not all of us are so you know, clever with it, but it, it enables us to connect and to stay connected. Mm. And as, as long as the technology is used in conjunction, you know, with other forms of communication, I think it's a wonderful um, new development, which might not have happened, had this pandemic not struck. So maybe it is a silver lining, you know, born of necessity in a way, and hopefully we'll continue, you know, after, after the pandemic, uh, Finally, is under control. We can continue to use Zoom and 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 connect with with our newfound literary people, and maybe also a broader recognition
0: of the the power of uh, you know the way in which poetry works from a word point of view almost I feel like versus the soundbite or the advertisement slogan or you know manipulative not not that poetry doesn't pick up on those things or can't be used in, in a multitude of ways as you found out as an editor but I almost feel like its main purpose is to go that next step deeper to not stop at you know, this, the simple interpretation, but to allow for multi- multiplicity and complexity and all of that, which is kind of the antithesis of, you know,
1: thought speak, if you like. It's interesting because um at times of really difficult times, poetry tends to <laughs> be used more. So, you know, in times of revolution, the poets were really busy and t- today was revolution, no, but in times of stress um, and crisis, people turn to poetry more and more because in the end with art, all art, I think we, we don't write about what we're comfortable with. I mean, why would we bother? We write about the challenges, we write about where we're struggling. We're, it's dynamic, it's really dynamic. So you're right, poetry has to always, and art has to continue to push the boundaries and question and disturb and provoke. Yes. And that's that's so important, yeah.
0: Absolutely. So we're almost out of time, but um, tell me, uh, are you working on another book? Is there something in the pipeline or a wish,
1: a wish project? <laughs> um, I just write all the time, so even if it's just five minutes a day, midnight. Um, and I never push myself, I never rush it. Uh, but when I have maybe another body of work. I have a certain number of poems, how they would all fit together. I'm not quite sure because I'm really interested in prose poetry, all sorts of poetry. Um, And then would you gather it by theme or chronologically? I'm not sure. So I'll just feel my way forwards. I would never write poetry just to fill another book, but if I have enough to do so, I'd love to. Mm
0: yes wonderful well we'll look forward to that um and just Thank before you. we finish up
1: uh, can you tell tell the listeners uh where best they can find you where would you uh, like well, yes yes you can find me really two places one is um my own website deniseohagen.com, and also in the blue nib.com um i'm one of the editors there so two places perfect well Thank um you.
0: Thank you so much for connecting me. And uh, if you don't already already have it, The Beating Heart, it's available everywhere online. And um, it's a, a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. So thank you so much for joining me today, Denise.
1: Thank you, Magdalena. It was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Bye. Bye.